Shelley Miscavige. She has not appeared in public since 2005. Where's Shelly and what happened? Where is Shelly? We're looking at like 17 years of a person just missing. Shelly Miscavige was given into the sole care of L. Ron Hubbard by her parents when she was 12. This is where Shelly is believed to be being held captive. Do you believe that Shelly Miscavige is a threat today? Oh, absolutely. She's seen it all. She's been by his side the whole time. Welcome back to the channel. I'm your host for today, Claire Headley. Uh, welcome back to SPTV and especially welcome to my next episode of Where is Shelley Miscavige? As you can see, my special guest for today is Mr. Mike Rinder. Hi, Claire. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the channel. I so appreciate you taking the time to do this with me. Of course. Yes. And so to launch right into it, um, as a summary for you, obviously, we all know the question, where is Shelley Miscavige? You and I both worked with Shelley very, very closely. Mm -hmm. um, I worked with her for, for eight years while I was in Religious Technology Center. Four of those years, she was directly running, with, running me as my boss, as it were. Right. And I was meeting with her every day. And of course, it was a shock to all of us when we learned that she had disappeared completely. Um, yes, because she's David Miscavige's wife, but even more so because she was the next most senior executive in all of Scientology. Correct. And I thought, I would love to hear your thoughts and perspective on this as a summary at the outset, and then we can get into discussing further. Well, as you say, Claire, um, and this is sometimes hard for people outside Scientology to understand that the disappearance of Shelley was like if suddenly the First Lady of the United States just didn't appear anywhere and nobody said anything. Right. It's not like, oh, well, she's in hospital or she's in rehab or she died or she's uh, suffered a debilitating fall. It's just nobody said a word. And it's not an exaggeration to say that Shelley was at David Miscavige's side, both for internal purposes, you know, with the senior echelons of the Scientology hierarchy, Sea Organization members, but also publicly to yes. the world of Scientology. She was a fixture alongside David Miscavige at every major Scientology event that occurred. Yes. And not only Scientology events, when David Miscavige would go to Tom Cruise movie premieres, Shelley would be with him. Yes. Always, not sometimes, always. Yes. She was um, a part of the package of David Miscavige presented to the world and a part of the package of David Miscavige as chairman of the board dealing with the senior executives of Scientology. They right. just went together. It wasn't like... Shelley was one thing and Dave was another. It was Dave and Shelley or COB and COB assistant. And her disappearance suddenly without any notification and without anybody asking about it was really, really bizarre. Right. And, and it's, it's typical Scientology <clears throat> style, but, very non-typical for the rest of the world, wouldn't you agree, that it's just, like like you said, she vanished, and everyone around her that noticed she was gone just pretended like it never happened. Or that it was perfectly normal. Right. Or that this, is, this is the new normal, and we completely understand, and we're not going to even remark on it, let alone question it. Like, it, it's, it's not even commented upon. Right. Nobody even says anything about it. It's so taboo to bring it up, which right. is why the, you know, the sky fell in on Leah when she asked, 
with Shelley at the wedding of the century. Yeah, she and, had the audacity to ask a simple, logical question. And and she wasn't even asking at that point, she wasn't even asking like, oh, this is weird. Where's Shelly? It was like, oh, where's Shelly? Right. Like, oh, maybe she's in the hotel room or maybe maybe she got uh, got sick. She was worried that she had gotten sick or something and so therefore couldn't fly or, you know, some some logical explanation because it was so crazy that she wasn't there. I mean, remember, Claire, Shelley had organized the wedding of Tom and Nicole in Telluride. She had arranged for Sonata to go there to cook and all the other people who went to set up the house and the flowers and the arrangements. She had personally vetted and overseen the hiring of the staff for Tom Cruise's household and for Odin Productions. She was like intricately involved in this world of Dave and Tom Cruise. And for her to not be at that wedding of the century was just uh, like almost unthinkable. But the only person that asked (laughs) about it was Leah in her, you know, typical brash New Yorker style. Right. Yeah. And you bring up a really good point. I hadn't really thought about that. Like, what do you think Dave Miscavige told Tom Cruise? I have, I suspect that um, he probably confided in Tom that Shelley uh, has got un- unhandled evil purposes and destructive intentions, that she has been doubting his um, decisions, and they yucked it up and kind of went, yep, so typical. The SPs are everywhere, even even your wife. You know, Tom, I had that with Nicole. She started being, like, not totally with the program, mm-hmm. and so I had to get rid of her, and Dave's like, oh, yeah. So And, you know, right. Hubbard had to do it with Mary Sue. She became a problem and a liability to him. It's the burden that we bear as the big beings on planet Earth. <laughs> The commiseration of the evil wife syndrome, as it were. And and the sad part is that, to me, this question, where is Shelley, epitomizes everything that's wrong with Scientology and emphasizes what Scientology can actually get away with in today's world in the United States of America. I couldn't agree with you more, Claire. You know, it is a sort of a catchphrase now. But let's not forget that there are a whole bunch of other disappeared people in Scientology. Yes, exactly. And that's the other reason, that's the other thing that inspired me to do this, because so easily Shelley's life story right now could be your story or my story. And it is other executive stories that are still in Scientology. Absolutely. It is Heba Jinch. It is... Guillaume Lasserve, it is Mark Yeager, it is Ray Midoff, it is Norman Starkey. I mean, these people who were the um, public faces of the upper echelons of Scientology international management are gone. They they disappeared just like Shelley and nobody asks about them. You know, (laughs) they're they're, um, certainly not as... as, um, catchy uh, as the where is Shelley, the wife of the leader of Scientology. But it's just as sad that these people have been effectively imprisoned. Now, whether that prison is the prison of barbed wire, razor fences, lights, motion detectors, and security guards, or whether the prison is the prison of belief, as Larry Wright so aptly subtitled his going clear book yes or a mix of both (laughs) yeah or or absolutely a mix of both which is what it is for everybody yes it's it's still a a incredible story of you know true crime right before everybody's eyes and 
nobody is doing anything about it. I know. It's literally mind-boggling. And I can't help but think, <clears throat> if it were you or if it were me, I would just hope and pray that somebody even noticed I was missing. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I thought the same thing. And, yeah. and you know, <clears throat> and I know that we have talked among ourselves, you know, you and me and Mark and, and others have talked among ourselves about, well, what would happen if if the FBI broke down the gates to the gold property or went to the, the church's spiritual technology facility at Twin Peaks and managed to gain access and got a hold of Shelly or Heba or one of those people and said, okay, you can come with us. Right. And I think that they wouldn't go. Right. I yeah. think that the fear of, the outside world, the the belief that Hubbard sort of hammered into everybody that, you know, the justice system and, and the FBI in particular are part of the evil conspiracy to destroy Scientology on planet Earth, controlled by the psychiatrists and whoever, you know, whatever all this crazy stuff is that the leap of walking out of that either one of those facilities and taking a chance that the outside world isn't as bad as it has been portrayed yeah. is, is unlikely. And, and the reason I say that, Claire, is because if someone has the courage to take that step, they do it regardless of whether the FBI shows up. That's you true. did. Mark yes. did. I did. JB did. Tom DeVock did. Like, we all managed to pull it off despite the circumstances. And, and but you bring up a really good point. <clears throat> so let me ask your opinion about this. When I, when I first learned that Shelley had vanished, in my mind, I thought, wow, there's just no way that she would ever escape or try to leave. However, now we're 18 years later, and not only has she not been seen in public, she hasn't been seen of or heard of at all. And now I start to wonder, maybe she did actually try to escape. Hmm. I don't think so. No? That's not, that's not my... That's not my view of where I think Shelley's head is at. Maybe not now, but perhaps somewhere in there. And to me, I don't know <clears throat> if there's even a tiniest percentage of a chance that she wanted to get out. Then this this conversation is well worth having. Ab, ab, I, oh, Claire, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. You know, um, it's that's certainly a possibility that it could have happened somewhere along the line. Yeah, and that um, as a result of that things are never going to uh, be relaxed right. in how she is treated and overseen and watched and monitored. Right. You know, the monitoring and the fences and all that are a barrier that is sort of erected. Um, it all of those things can be overcome if you want to, but because they're there, you have to make a, a bigger, more certain decision to try and overcome them. Yes, and true. <laughs> it's, it's like they have uh, an effect of, you know, it's, it, it's like having a, a, a moat that you think you can't cross. Right. Even though you actually can. Uh, if you think you can't, you don't make as much effort to do so, or right. you just give up and go, well, okay, I'm stuck. I can't really do anything about this. And that's what all the physical stuff really is. It's that deterrence. Yes. But it doesn't actually stop anybody that really wants to try, or it can stop them um, <clears throat> once they try. You know, there have been people who have not been able to get away, even though they tried to. Right. They got dragged back. 
right. and then they're still there. So yeah, the the saddest one I ever knew was De- Deborah Friedman, who escaped from Sublet Road and fell in a ditch where they retrieved her from. I mean, it's it's laughable and really really sad. It's, it's like oh my it's, goodness, it's terribly sad, yeah. and it's um, <clears throat> it's incredible that this is still <laughs> the state of affairs today because yeah. this has been talked about and exposed and reported to the FBI and reported to the the to the sheriff's department and you know become the topic of constant jokes and yes. twitter and all sorts of stuff but nothing changes right and yeah. that, that's that's what makes me sad yeah no um, and and <laughs> And again, so just throwing out different ideas. Uh, The other thing that kind of stuck with me is if Shelly did want to stay, why hasn't Miscavige used her to dispel this and put an end to it? um, My view of that is that Miscavige is so vain that if, he was to do that, he would consider that was a sign of weakness, mm. that he was caving into the SPs. Right. That because some, you know, nobody apostates on the fringes of the internet, uh, loser DBs said that he should produce Shelley, that he did, that that would be a, a loss for him and a victory for the horrible people like us. Yeah, and that I believe is a good enough reason in his world to not do it. Yeah. Because if Shelley, you know, they get all of these people, a lot of people to do these crazy POW style, you know, gold shoot videos of, oh, you know, the famous crackalicka <laughs> stories and all of yeah, that sort of and stuff. Including our family, anyone we ever worked with. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and so it wouldn't seem that if Shelley was in a frame of mind of wanting to stay, that it would be too difficult to persuade her to do a video like that so that the heat went off. Right. But on the other hand, I am not sure that she I have a different sort of take on what my um, guess is about yeah. Shelley okay. and her frame of mind, which is not that she is willingly staying because she is willingly in agreement with Dave. My belief is that Shelley has convinced herself that she has an obligation to L. Ron Hubbard to stick it out. And that Hubbard may be coming back. He may be late, but he may still be coming back. Or it's the only thing that she has to hang on to is that he will come back and she will be vindicated and everything will return to, you know, the more blissful days of her childhood when she was, you know, with Hubbard all day, every day as her surrogate father. Right. Um, And that, while she isn't going to escape because she has nowhere to go and thinks the wog world out, you know, the world outside of Scientology and particularly outside of the Sea Org is terrible and dangerous. Um, she will stick it out to hang on for the return of the Commodore. Yes. And that she may be uncooperative and un um you know unwilling to do what Dave may want her to do. If he wanted her to do a video, she may just refuse to do it or right. do it in, with such a sour puss face that it you know, or blinking that pe- <laughs> people would go, Whoa, this is weird. Yeah. Um, so that's, that is my view is okay. that the reason that she has not escaped the reason why there has been no word from her, the reason why uh, all of this is has gone on behind closed doors and nobody really knows 
is that that is her frame of mind. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And in fact, so in the course of, you know, as I was inspired to kind of do this series, I start, I realized I, I knew very little about Shelly as we all did. We, we know, not like, I didn't know much about you personally. I, you know, you just didn't have personal conversations right. to become acquainted and become deeply, uh, you know, entrusting the people that you worked with. So for, in Shelly's case, I realized that was the case. So I started like learning more about her life and come to realize she was four years old when her family joined Scientology. I had no idea she'd been in that long. So now at the age of 62, she's been in Scientology for 58 years. Yeah. Um, I arrived on the Apollo in 1973, which is when I first met Shelley. And I think that she had arrived maybe in 1972 Okay. Maybe in 1973, I'm not entirely sure. And I guess she was like 12 or 13 at the time. And her parents were not there. Yes. Her older sister, Clarice, was there. I mean, she was like two years older. She's not like she had a legal guardian. Right. Her, her surrogate father was L. Ron Hubbard. Her surrogate mother was Mary Sue Hubbard. She was the baby of the Commodore's Messenger Org. She was the little kid. I mean, I remember we used to hang out on the the aft quarter deck of the Apollo at mealtimes. Everybody's smoking. You know, even uh, as young as we were, everybody smoked. That was the only thing you did. You went outside and had a cigarette. And kidding around with Shelly and Foster Tompkins and I – um, Foster Tompkins was my miner's mate or my guardian because okay. I had to have a guardian. And we would sort of tickle Shelly and then tie her shoelaces together. Because <laughs> <laughs> she wore these these sneakers. The messengers wore these sneakers. No wonder she was so mean to you later. <laughs> it was not really mean to me. I know, yeah. I know. I'm just joking. I, I, I tell people, you know, people ask me about Shelly and they say, well, what was Shelly like? I said, I don't know, maybe very different to me than to a lot of other people. Uh, she was always nice to me. I she know. was always kind to me. I I really liked Shelly. Yes, likewise. And, and I did observe her being kind and nice to you on many occasions. I didn't I didn't mean that sincerely. Yeah, so yeah. There I are know. some people that absolutely loathe her. <laughs> I know a lot. Yeah. And, and and you know, that's a reflection of when you're the the sort of um the second person uh working directly for a tyrant, you it rubs off on you and yes. you are expected to enforce crazy orders from that tyrant and yes. you're associated with that tyrant in the mind of the people who are getting who are getting abused by him so right and and you're supposed to mirror <laughs> and communicate exactly whatever the tyrant says and feels to whoever he sa- says to do that to right yeah so i um i think that shelley's loyalty to l ron hubbard transcended her loyalty to any other person or thing in the world. Yes. And it probably still does. Yes. So at 12, when you knew her on the Apollo, she was already at that time, one of Hubbard's messengers. Yes. Wow. Yes. She, I mean, she wore the same uniform as the others, you know, Janice and Terry and Annie and Claire and like, and Clarice and, she was just little. She was like a kid. Yes. They were like teenagers, you know, um, some of them were very voluptuous and attractive. Shelly was like a, a little girl. Yeah. And she, you know, obviously she grew up over time, but she was the, she was the, the baby of the gang. Yeah. And, and, and it's funny, just a comment. <clears throat> so, Obviously, it's talked about many times how there's young kids in the C organization without their parents. But I will say now with 
my kids being that age, it's just gut punching. I how, know. How does this go on? I know. What? Can you can you imagine if you had sent Kale off to some ship in the Mediterranean when he turned twelve? I can't. And just I, went. I okay, bye. Shudder to think. It's yeah. It really brings it into perspective where it's you know having grown up in it, I was kind of numb to it all. But now it's on a daily basis. Every time I reflect <clears throat> on it, I'm like, what the heck? I, I know. I'm like, Jack, uh, next year you're heading to uh, Portugal or Morocco to go live on a rust bucket with people that you don't even know. Yeah. How do you like that? Oh, yeah, I'm in. <laughs> uh, no, don't yeah. think so. No. And I and I hadn't realized Shelly was not <clears throat> unique in this respect. Like, um, you know, Jenna Miscavige talks about in her book how Biddy – her mom did the same thing. Yes. I know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a crazy, crazy world that, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to, or I spend a lot of time and, and I know that you and Mark do trying to make, um, the insanity understandable. Right. Because the insanity is, in many respects, so insane that people don't believe it. it it's like, yeah, can't, it, that, yeah, I get that. That's that. That sounds like something, but it couldn't really just be that. Right. It too, couldn't too be incredible that. to be believed. Too bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. it is crazy. Yeah. And and tell me, <clears throat> so so you first met Shelley on the Apollo. Walk me through your like your observations of her, your relationship with her through the years after that. Okay, well, she and um, she and the rest of the messengers, we were like a sort of a gang. Uh, I, even though I wasn't in the Commodore's Messenger Org, I was friends with all of them. Most of them were were female, um, and there was some guys who were sort of similar ages. So we would go out when we had liberties and spend time together. And I would see her and the rest of the messengers at mealtimes. And every now and then Shelly would show up uh, with a message from Hubbard, you know, and that was like when a Commodore's messenger showed up at your desk to look you in the eye and say, the Commodore wants to know why blank mm -hmm. or please uh you you are ordered to get an uh, eval done on san francisco org in the next 24 hours you know have it submitted to the commodore in 24 hours this was serious shit right like the, the this was not something that you messed with there was no joking around there was it was like a very, very you know the the adage is what you say and do and and the way that you treat a Commodore's messenger is you saying and doing and treating L. Ron Hubbard. Right. And so, you know, these guys had an enormous amount of authority. Yes. Mealtimes, that's different. Out on Liberty, that's different. But when they were doing their job, they were like nobody uh, could even look at them with a side glance you right. know you, you yeah, just there, there was no friendly banter or anything like that nope and yeah. that was sort of the relationship that i had with shelly on the ship um when we came to first daytona and then clearwater i don't remember shelly being around because i think she was with hubbard okay. and hubbard was to begin with in Daytona, he was in a separate condo down the beach a bit. And then when we moved to Clearwater, he was in Dunedin. And then pretty soon he had taken off. He went first to DC. Shelly didn't go there, but I think she went to LA to help set up the, what was called Astra at the time. Um, it was a communication relay apartment in Culver City or somewhere. I can't even remember. Before oh. Hubbard moved to La Quinta. And then okay. she went to La Quinta um, when he set up there to do the 
um, films. And that was when I saw her again when I went to La Quinta to train to be a watch messenger. Okay. I then came into the CMO. I was selected by Annie Broker to become the head of the CMO in Clearwater. So I was sent to La Quinta to train with Hubbard as what's known as a watch messenger. Yes. And, uh, and what year was this now? Hmm. Roughly. <laughs> 1978, I think. Okay. I think it was 78. Okay. So you've known Shelly often. I mean, you've interacted with her off and on by this point for like seven years. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, she was one of the people that I would hang with when I was there. Um, <clears throat> all of those messengers were, were my old friends from the Apollo. And that, there was sort of this, um, I don't know, it's like being in an old, you know, division of the military or something. Yeah. You, like the a, the like relationship. Camaraderie kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And and nobody can quite um ever get into that um into that <clears throat> thing yeah. without uh if you hadn't been there. Right. Like you can't you can't come along later and sort of join the click. Right. You are in the click. And you'll always be in the click. Right. And if you're not in the click, you can't ever get in it. Yes. And I observe that actually between often between Shelly and Marion. Yes. Although Marion was sort of an oddity because Marion had been on the Apollo. She was not in the CMO. Then she'd gone off the Apollo, but had known all those guys from when she was there. Anyway, yes. Okay. Just like that. But yes. the relationship that I had with Didi and Gail and Annie and Terry and Janice and Claire and Shelly and Clarice was a different relationship than even when Dave came along. He didn't have that relationship because he hadn't been with them back in the Apollo days. Yes. And the people who were on the Apollo had a different it was just different, you know, yes. Mark and Liz Ingber and Mark Yeager and there were, and Norman Starkey. There was this sort of, like I said, a click. Yes. It was just a click. And these people had different interactions and different relationships than anybody else had. Yeah. And, and, and knowing how Miscavige so systematically destroyed anyone else who had executive authority or that Hubbard personal relationship within Scientology after Hubbard passed. I'm curious if you think he had resentment towards Shelley for that. Hmm. Resentment. Um, or probably perhaps, concern. I think. Yeah. I, perhaps I, resentment's the wrong word. If, do you think he considered her a threat? Yes. Okay. This, this and this is something that I've I've said a few times now. It, it, when I list off the names of those people, and like who was left, so you so you get down to the the days of the whole, and now Russ Bellin from CST is in there. Janet McLaughlin from IAS is in there. All of the senior echelon of Scientology are in there. There is nobody left who is a potential threat. You know, the Azarans are long gone. Annie and, and Pat Broker are long gone. Nobody is left around except for this little core of people who were once senior officials in Scientology. And I'll list them off because all of the names that I'm going to give you all came from the Apollo. Wow. Norman Starkey. Me, Mark Yeager, Mark Ingber, Liz Ingber, Wendell Reynolds. We were all in the hole together. Yes. There is one person that could have united those people, and that's Shelley. Wow. The only person, the only person who could have said, look, everybody, 
Dave's gone off the rails. We need to do something about it. The old man would be really upset if we didn't act. The only person that those people might have listened to in competition with the wishes of Dave would be Shelley. Yes, completely. And in fact, you bring up a really good point. So in the course of doing this series so far, it has really struck me that Shelley's banishment is equally, in my opinion, punishment of Shelley and a very strong message to everybody else. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. This this is the, I don't care who you are, you're not safe. Right. I don't care what you have done in the past. I don't care what I have said about you in the past. I don't care how much trust I've placed in you. You could be gone tomorrow with the snap of my finger. Yes. And, and what is remarkable to me, Claire, um, is the parallels between Mary Sue Hubbard yes. and Shelley. Yes. Um, and L. Ron Hubbard and Dave. Because Mary Sue Hubbard had a similar role with L. Ron Hubbard that Shelley had with Dave. In that Mary Sue Hubbard was renowned uh, for trying to um, smooth over the waters of the roughshod treatment that Hubbard would mete out to his staff and subordinates. And she was the one who would be saying, uh, sir, the food really needs to be improved in the galley. The crew are not eating well. Um, you know, sir, they, people need to sleep. They're not, they're they're not as productive if they're not sleeping. And then you would see these edicts being issued of, you know, okay, well, people have to go to bed on time and, you know, it's not acceptable to be a zombie with no sleep or the food allocation would be raised or, or whatever. Yes. And Mary Sue Hubbard was known, um, particularly on the Apollo by the crew, as being the person who could speak to Ron and talk some sense into him when, when shit was going sideways. Right. And so... And not to interrupt you, but I just want to comment because it's striking me now. This was somewhat of a theoretical relationship to me before our conversation. But now I'm realizing Shelley was there seeing all of this. And Mary Sue and Hubbard were both her practically her parents. Yes. Unbelievable. And we all know that one of Shelley's roles was to... Go behind, go behind the path of destruction of Dave, yes. and try and tell everybody. Look, you know, I, I'm I'm sorry that wasn't right, but you know, he's just upset because he's got so much pressure and so many hats on his plate. And you yes. know, let me give you a band aid to. Right. You I've know, had to personally a, do that many times. And and <laughs> by I <order> know Shelley, <laughs> and I know because like when I was in Clearwater for the Lisa McPherson case, I spent an inordinate amount of time with Shelly and Dave together. Yes. Me and Marty and Shelly and Dave ate every meal together for like three years. Like literally. Yeah. No, I remember it wasn't it like, it was like 98, 99. Maybe even starting in 97. Yep. Yes. And and you know we ate in the little conference room in RTC in the the West Coast building on the top floor, and Sinar was the cook. Yes. And we lit, and I, Marty and I, had a little office down the hall, and Dave had his office, and Shelley had her office, and that was basically it. We were we were sort of it. And I observed numerous conversations at the dinner table, or then in the in the car as we were driving back and forth to the Hacienda or going to the movies on Friday night or whatever about look, um, you know, David get off the phone screaming at the people at Int. He'd have these long, you know, three hour phone calls with everybody in WDC at the other end. And he'd just be losing his shit on them. And they get off the call and Shelly would go, 
you know, I'm not sure that that I'm not sure, like, without being overtly critical, being the only person that could ever say, you know, maybe this needs a rethink. Wow. And gently, but there wasn't anybody else in the entire world who would say anything like that. Right. I know. Just not. (laughs) <laughs> not even remotely. Yes. So that um that aspect of their relationship I believe was a significant factor in why she ultimately became uh perceived as a big threat to his ability to continue because uh, or to maintain his power. One, because she was willing to look at him in with some critical eye. Right. And two, because she had the ability to talk to the clique of ex-Apollo people who, had they decided to sort of gang up, may well have been able to overthrow David Miscavige. Yes. And, and it's interesting you say that, too, because timeline-wise... Um, 97 or 98 was when Shelley told myself and another person in Religious Technology Center that she was worried that Miscavige was going to have a psychotic break. Well, he did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, he did. Yes. Uh, like the the incident which I recount in my book about what happened when he went to Los Angeles with Shelley to do prepare for the millennium event in December of 1999. And Marty Rathman and I were left behind to attend a hearing about whether David Miscavige was going to remain as a defendant in the Lisa McPherson civil case. Yes. He completely and utterly lost it at that point. And I know from hearing the people at the other end who were putting on that event that he started going absolutely lunatic on the people who were preparing the event with him. And that, you know, it had gone even worse than after the flood, you know, the great flood of 1990 that resulted in a, in a, you know, gold being turned into a prison camp. Um, he went even more loony on, on that event and the preparations for that event and the people that were involved in it. And I, you know, I really noted or marked that as a sort of a, another turning point in the downward spiral of David's Miscavige's descent into psychosis. Yes, no, absolutely. And actually now you're reminding me that at that time, so Shelley was working on other projects, interestingly. Like she was working on all the preparations Y2K. for Y2K. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was brilliant. <laughs> Meaning our our uh, synchronization. <laughs> but yeah, but it's interesting because it I of course didn't think this at the time, but now I'm listening to you talk and going, yeah, maybe she was just trying to now distance herself from the psychosis. Yeah. Well, for those who don't know what Y2K is, yes. that was like the big scare at the end of 1999 was that the clocks were going to turn to the year 2000 and all computers on planet Earth were suddenly going to go psychotic. Yes. And and so <laughs> and that there would be riots in the streets and money would be no good and er- I mean it was like the the extreme the extreme and of course in Scientology it went to the ridiculous extreme yes. of preparing for all this with generators and and you know supplies and and, mres to for us to survive for like what like a year yeah and and you know (laughs) gold coins and like all of this crazy stuff and shelly was in charge of that yes shelly was like the y2k in charge yes Uh, and while dave was putting together the millennium event 
Shelly was preparing to make sure no catastrophe happened. Right. Well, I, 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 you know, I don't know what the motivation for that was, but hell, if I was her at that time, I would have stayed as far away from <laughs> Dave and that event as I possibly could oh have. My gosh. So I'm, I'm literally having flashbacks as you're talking because I attended a lot of those meetings and it was just mind-numbingly terrifying and awful. And uh, like, that's, I think for me, where I start to feel like this, the unreality of like, what world are we living in here? Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and what were your observations of Shelly and Dave's personal relationship? <clears throat> like, did you ever see him physically abuse her or attack her? Okay. No, I yeah. did not. Yeah. Um, my observations were that their personal relationship was not that much different than their business relationship. Um, I didn't see a whole lot of affection, you know, um, Shelly slept in a separate room as long as uh, I knew where they were living, they were living in a separate room. Well, not yes. as long. In the beginning when they got married, they shared a room at, in the upper villas and one in L.A. But then subsequent to that, they had separate rooms. Hmm. And, well, I mean, just like Hubbard and Mary Sue did. I mean, they had separate rooms and cabins too, on the Apollo, at St. Hill, at, at you know, well, La Quinta. The, so... It was not, um, wasn't, there wasn't much public display of affection. Right. And a lot of things were very matter of fact and yes. uh, businesslike. And, you know, what are we eating for dinner? And I'll tell the chef to do blah. And, you know, what are we getting for such and such for their birthday? Or, you know, like, when we went out to to the movies, you know, we would chat about random stuff, a lot about sports. You know, Dave was sort of fanatical about any Philadelphia team, whether it was the Flyers or the Sixers or the Eagles. Yes. And so there would be a lot of discussion about that. Um, if we saw a movie, the, we would always talk about what we thought about it and what we thought the – whether the movie was good and whether the sets were good and whether the script was good and the lighting and the camera and all that sort of stuff. But I don't know. I don't, I don't ever feel like you said, Claire, um, relationships in the Sea Org don't tend to be very personal. Yes. You don't find out much about the person and their life yes. and particularly not their family. Obviously, I knew Dave because I knew Ronnie. My parents knew Ron Senior and Loretta and have been friends with them at St. Hill. So I knew the Miscavige family much more than I knew the Barnett family. Okay. Um, and I never really talked to Shelley. I, I probably talked more to Clarice about her fam family um, than I did ever talk to Shelley. Yeah. And there was no discussion about that that I ever recall um, other than Dave complaining about Loretta. He complained about his mother constantly. <laughs> what a bitch she was and Ugh. how she was a, you know, a, a PTS sick, sick person. And she caused him so much trouble and how, you know, Denise always is causing him trouble and what a pain in the ass she is. And he would talk about that sort of at, you know, dinner or whatever. Yes. But nothing about, you know, any sort of intimacy or, or you know, personal chit-chat about their lives or thoughts about their lives. It was a – it was – it seemed very – transactional but right. that's not really unusual 
in right. the ceiling. I know. It's everybody's <laughs> relationship is like that. Right. Like it didn't stand out as it would in the Yes, world exactly. <laughs> it, today you'd go, wow, there's something weird about that couple. Yes. I mean, th- that's just a little weird. They don't, they don't seem to have. They don't seem to talk about anything. Right. They don't they seem to talk like about androids. Exactly. Devoid of all emotion. <laughs> exactly. But but back in those days, that was just pretty typical. Yeah. They weren't unusual. So in concluding, here's my final question to you. If you had the chance, what would you tell Shelly now? If I had the chance, I would tell her, Shelly, think for yourself for a short minute and realize that there is a possibility that things that you believe now are not entirely true and that if you can get yourself a little distance from the world in which you have lived for so long and step outside of it for a moment and give yourself an opportunity to look back inside, you may be surprised. I'm not telling you that everything uh, is, is wrong. Everything is good. I'm right. You're wrong. I'm just saying, take a moment to consider the possibility that there is something that you don't know. Mm-hmm. And there are things that you are unaware of and that you may be able to find things out that could be very helpful to you. Nice. I would be very gentle. I I mean, you, you we know what it's like, Claire, when you're in there that you can't you can't accept like telling someone, Shelly, get out, escape right now. Yeah. She will be like, I'm not I'm I'm doing what I want to do. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right and that was brilliantly said and I think you're you're right too. The chances are Shelly is probably already at war mentally herself. <laughs> so adding to that doing anything other than unconditional love and acceptance is not going to help. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. All righty. Well, thank you so very much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's it's I, it's really honestly just helping me learn much more even than I did about Shelly. And, and again, you know, how is it that people can just vanish in today's world and nobody notices? Right. Yeah. Or people notice and don't do anything about it. Right. And at least, at least until something else happens... Uh, you, Leah, and everyone else who's speaking out against Scientology and its abuses, the fact of the matter is, is that the narrative has been changed in regards to Scientology and people more and more who were never in know the dangers. So there's a tremendous amount that has been accomplished there and hats off to you for your tireless work. (laughs) Thank you so much. I love you, Claire. Love you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon.